Uh, I want us to turn to Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. If you haven't downloaded the mobile app already, you can uh, search HMCC in the Google Play Store, the App Store. There's going to be sermon notes you can follow along with. It'll be fill in the blank, and you can, uh, there will be some ver- uh, verse references, and then that'll help you to follow along with the message. Uh, what I wanted to do is continue on in our series called Motivation. And we've been covering the book of Titus. And the whole book of Titus is written to this person named Titus. The author is Paul. And what he does is he's commissioning Titus to go to this island called Crete. And in that island are a network of churches that are under attack from all sorts of worldly uh, ideas or arguments or false, false truths that are really leading the people away from the true gospel. And we've been talking about Titus for the last few weeks. And today, as we look into chapter 2, we're going to continue to see how we are motivated in every aspect of our lives to really live out the gospel in every area of our lives. So to begin to talk about this, I wanted to start with a question for us this morning. The question is, when was the last time you had an opportunity to cheat? or to cut corners. Don't, don't raise your hand, okay? When was the last time you had an opportunity or you were tempted to cheat or cut corners or take a shortcut, but you didn't end up doing it? Just think for a moment. Some of us are like, oh, I never cheat. I never cut corners. I'm perfect. <laughs> but you didn't end up doing it. And the question is, what motivated you to not do that? When you could have gotten something faster easier, or something you could have gotten it your own way, but you instead, you decided to take the the noble route, the the main route. What motivated you? Was it your morals? Was it fear of consequences? Was it someone looking over your back, you're like, oh my gosh, my LCG, my accountability partner is going to yell at me the next week that I meet with them? What was it? I think oftentimes it's, it's difficult for us to, to, to look at some of these things or be motivated to live upright and godly lives out of a genuine motivation to love God. I think a lot of us might stare, stay away from doing those things because we're afraid of the consequences. But when it really comes down to those little minute things that they don't seem to have big consequences, it's really easy for us to rationalize or justify why we would cut corners, or just look at someone else's paper, or you know, copy off someone else's work. And so when we think about what motivates us to really live or to do something nobly, I wanted us to, sh- I wanted us to watch this video. It's a professor from University of California who's trying to argue in the beginning of class why students should not cheat in his class. Uh, just a kind of disclaimer, the video's a little bit dull, it's just like a lecture recording, so there's not much that happens in the video, but I want you to focus more on what he says. He tries to argue for students for why they ought not to cheat in class, and what I want you to be is the judge of whether he's really convincing or not. So for students, this is real advice for you right now as you, come, you start your next semester. For those of us who are working, just think back, what was it like to be in school a long, long time ago, all right? So let's watch this video together. And let's see if he makes a good argument. All right. Are you convinced? Show of hands. Wow. All right. The question, 
for us is that does that, all the questions that he mentioned or all the factors that he mentioned, whether it's you're harming your other students, you're harming the reputation of the university, or that these little actions day by day will actually sum up who you become the rest of your life. Is that something that's really going to motivate us to live an upright and a godly life? For some of us, it may. Some of us were like, you know what? I realize how the sum of my life choices actually turns me into who I am. I realize, some of us are like, oh wow, that's so true because I eat so much every day and now look at where I am, right? Some of us are like, oh, I watch YouTube all the time and that's why my brain is fried all the time. We are a, a sum of our life choices so oftentimes. But still, somehow, no matter how many times people warn us, no matter how many times people might say that if you don't do this or if you do that, then these are going to be the consequences that you have for the rest of your life. Sometimes that still doesn't get to the heart. Sometimes it really doesn't still motivate us to be able to live the way that we ought to or the way that we feel like we ought to. And so as we've been looking through the book of Titus, Paul now tackles this question, or actually two questions that I want to talk about this morning. The first question is, how do we get motivated to live godly lives? And the second question is, how do we continue to live godly lives? Because really, the motivation is the key. Sometimes we're motivated by consequences. Sometimes we're motivated by fear. Sometimes we're motivated by what we can get in the future. But what is an enduring motivation that will not only start us on the right path, but also sustain us into the future? And so those are the two questions that I want to talk about. And I want to first start with the first question, which is how do we get motivated to get, live godly lives? So let's start and, and look at this passage. Hopefully you've turned to Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. And let me read the whole passage for us in the English Standard Version. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So I wanted to do a little bit differently instead of just the typical one-two points and having one thing. I wanted us to really think about these questions as we go through this passage and see how different parts of what Paul is saying to Titus is going to help us understand how we get motivated to actually live a godly life. And when we look at this, Paul starts in verse 11 with this declaration, says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we notice that word for is very significant. Anytime the Bible uses uh, one of those types of words, for, therefore, and, however, but, that means there's something that comes before it that is relevant to what is just said. And what was said before this, Paul talks and spends the first chapter and a half talking about our mentorship relationships. Last week we talked about how we need to reach the next generation when the gospel becomes our inspiration. A couple weeks ago we talked about how uh, elders and leaders and just people in our church we ought to live is we ought to grow in our leadership when we're under good mentorship. And previously before that we talked about how our motivation for everything must be the gospel. 
to be able to live self-controlled lives, not to be liars, not to be deceivers, but to live a life that is self-controlled and pure. And so now Paul is saying all those things that we talked about prior to this, all those things that I said are good things to do, bad things that we shouldn't do, for this is the reason why. It is the grace of God that has appeared. That is the reason why. So let's go and unpackage this. What is, what is this grace of God that he's talking about? And I think for many of us, grace is this kind of overarching umbrella of the, the answer to everything in Christianity, right? Like when you're in life group and you're studying the Bible, and you're, I wonder, and then someone asks this really insightful question, and you being the, you know, I grew up in church and I know all the right answers, Christian, it was God's grace. God's grace is the answer. God's grace is always the answer, right? It's always the answer. And you're like, what is God's grace? You know, it's like this amazing feeling and, you know, love and kindness and it is mercy. You know, we just keep on using more Christian words and we don't really know what it means. We're like, yes, yeah, God's grace. GG. <laughs> UST, last year's life group. What is God's grace? If we were to define it succinctly, what is God's grace? D.L. Moody in, in uh, various sermons, there's a collection of sermons called New Sermons, Addresses, and Prayers. He writes, grace means undeserved kindness. It is the gift of God to man the moment he sees he is unworthy of God's favor. I think that's a really powerful definition. It's undeserved kindness. That's something that we can understand. It's not an abstract love, mercy, hope, faith, hope, love. That's what grace is, you know? No, it's undeserved kindness. It's when someone or something was kind to you, was nice to you, had favor on you, even though you didn't deserve it. Even though you did nothing to earn that blessing. And it's not just enough just to be undeserved or, or kind. But that grace is so significant because the person who is the recipient of grace realizes he's so unworthy of it. That's why that word undeserving is so important. It's because once we understand that we are so unworthy or undeserving, that's when grace really becomes grace. That's when it becomes amazing grace that we sing about in the song. And so if this grace is so undeserving, it is so amazing, how does it actually motivate us? Let's unpackage this and let's talk through these few verses. We notice there are two things that the grace of God did as Paul begins to explain it in this passage. The first thing that the grace of God did was it appeared. So it's for the grace of God appeared. Well, I think that's, Normal. Is it normal? <clears throat> when, when something appears, what does it really do to us? What does it really cause us to, to respond to? When something appears, we always have a choice, right? You can either ignore it and not do anything about it, or you can receive it, or you can reject it. There's only a few options. But whenever something appears, you can't, you can't just say, oh, it didn't appear, and just move on it causes some kind of response 
from us. Let, let me give us, I don't know why this was the first example that came to my mind. Any of you play Pokemon, hands raised? Pokemon fans, wow, there's quite a few. Like when you're playing Pokemon, you're walking around the little grass, and what happens? Wild Pikachu appeared, you know? <laughs> and you're like, battle, 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 right? Like you can't ignore the Pikachu. It just appears and the game forces you to engage with the Pikachu. Yes, of course, you can choose to run away or you can choose to fight it and try to catch them all because you're the Pokemon master, right? But you can't ignore it. You have to engage with it. Regardless of what you're thinking, you have to do something in that moment. I mean, it's the same in real life, right? Let's, let's forget about Pokemon, right? Let's say your boss appears. Oh, boss battle now. Your boss appears and they give you some feedback or some criticism. What happens? What do you have to do? You have some options. You could run away, right? But that probably wouldn't go over so well. You could just ignore it. That also probably wouldn't go so well. You probably, you could get angry. You could get defensive, which also probably wouldn't go so well. Or you could just submit and then just be, you know, put under the pressure of everything your boss wants you to do, which also probably doesn't go so well. So nothing you do goes well when your boss gives you some criticism or feedback. But it's motivating, right? When something appears, so we have to do, about, do something about this. Married couples, when your spouse appears, what happens? Let's say your spouse gives you like a nice gift and it just appears out of nowhere. What are your options for responding? Can you do nothing? Married couples, what happens when you do nothing? Bad things happen, right? Bad things happen, right? If your spouse does something nice for you, you don't acknowledge it at all. Don't, don't ever, okay, those of you who will get married in the future, don't ever do that, okay? Make sure you always acknowledge when your spouse gives you something nice. You always need to acknowledge what happened. You say, thanks, blank, 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 right? So much for all that you've done, and I appreciate it so much because, man, I'm so touched, okay? You have to acknowledge it. You can't just say it wasn't there. It causes, it motivates us to do something just by virtue of something appearing because it changes the course of action, changes our thought, it changes what's happening in our lives. It's motivating us to respond in some kind of way. And that's the amazing grace of God, isn't it? That it appeared that you didn't do anything, you weren't earning, you didn't have enough works to somehow allow God's grace to appear. But it just appeared. It just popped up out of nowhere. It wasn't something that you had foreseen. Didn't, you didn't prophesy like, oh, I believe that the grace of God is going to appear in my life today. No, it was there. It was undeserved. God gave it to us. And the question is, when it appears, what do we do? Is there a response to it, or do we just ignore it like other things in our lives? Something that appears like that that is so amazing, it demands a response. It demands a reaction. It demands something from us, and it motivates us to be able to say, yes, I need to do something about that. But many of us, we know it's not enough. Just saying something appeared isn't quite enough. Because some of us might say, you know what? Even though there are things that are small, just because they appear doesn't really have much impact on my life. And some of us, you know, if there's a little fly that appeared in our room, you're like, 
Some of us are really motivated, like, I want to kill that fly, you know, just get out of my life. Or some of us, it's a mosquito, like, a little bit more motivated to do something about it, because otherwise it's going to bite us and we're going to be itchy. Now, what if a bee appeared in your room? Some of you would be jumping off the wall, because you're like, I don't want to get stung. What if a tiger came into your room? I don't know if you guys know, I was, on the, I was on the news recently, I read about how this tiger actually came into someone's house in India because there was flooding going on, and so what's going to happen if a tiger comes in your room? You run, right? You're like, I'm out of here. And so when we think about some things that appear, the things that have bigger consequences or more significant are the things that motivate us more. Isn't that true? Have you ever thought about that? That when, when we think about the things that really get our attention, that really motivate us, this tends to be the things that are more significant or the things that have greater consequences that really motivate us, that really get us moving in different ways. And so that means we have to really be able to see what are those things that are so significant and consequential in our lives. Of all the groundbreaking things that are happening in our world today, what are the things that we think are the most consequential, most significant things that should be motivating us. What are some examples? I was thinking of some couple that just came to mind. First thing I found out recently is that um, Apple is going to introduce and integrate Apple Pay with Octopus Cards. Any of you have iPhones, you're like, hallelujah, that's going to change my life. I am now so motivated, some Android users, now you're motivated now to switch from Android to iPhone, right? <laughs> And I was like tempted, I was like, oh, should I get an Apple Watch? Because you know if you have an Apple Watch, you have Apple, you go doot, and then you just go into the MTR. It's amazing. You don't have to pull out your Octopus card, do anything like that. And you're like, wow, this technology is going to change my life. Or some of us, you know, there's been revolution. Some of you have heard of uh, these plant-based meat alternatives, like Beyond Meat or Impossible Food. You're like, wow, this is amazing, because now I could be green and healthy, and now I can have this amazing burger, but still have a burger. <laughs> well, my life is revolutionized because of this fake meat now. It's fake news, fake meat. Some of, this is a little bit older, but some of us were like, wow, artificial intelligence for camera phones is the best thing ever. Now I can take knife photos, and it makes it look like daytime photos, <laughs> you know, things like that. You're like, oh, it's changed my life. And these are supposedly like the top tier innovations of our society in the recent years. 3D printing, you can add that. Nanotechnology, you can add that. Breakthroughs and medication. And, and, and these are the top breakthroughs in technology in the last couple years. My question is, have these things genuinely changed your life? Now that you can beep in with your watch and your iPhone instead of pulling out your octopus card, you save one second every time you go through the turnstiles. But someone's like, yeah, one second, you know, two times a day, 365, that's seven, 800 seconds. I'm saving lots of time. I don't, I'm not so sure that those are the things that really motivate us even though they're quote-unquote significant. Because the things that really motivate us, that are really significant in our lives, what are they usually a combination of? Health, security, quality of life, socioeconomic status, your future job, career, your significance, joy, acceptance, freedom. 
those are the things that we always long for. Those are the things that really cause us to be motivated to pursue after certain things or to drop others. Now, this is the big thing, is that if you can find something or if you can find someone that could provide you all those things, would that not be the most significant motivator of everything that you do? If you can find something that can provide for you quality of life, if you can find something that can provide for you significance, if you can find something that can provide for you freedom, acceptance, hope, would that not be the deepest and the greatest motivator of all? And that's what Paul's offering. He's offering an alternative to the things that we see in the world as motivators. Because these are the things that really ultimately God's grace provides. What does God's grace provide? He says that. And the second thing, not only that God's grace appears, but it's bringing salvation for all people. God's grace is bringing salvation for all people. And in the process of bringing salvation, he's providing all those things that we so deeply yearn for and long for. I want to read this verse in Romans 3, 22 to 24. It talks about what God did when he brought salvation for us. Paul says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This is what grace does. For everyone has sinned, everyone has fallen short, everyone does not deserve those great things. Health, security, significance, joy, satisfaction, acceptance, freedom. But he freely gives it to us. He freely what? Makes us right in his sight. When we are made right with God, then everything else along with that comes to being right. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, it's not up there, but I wanted to read us for it. Read it for us. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if you are right with God, your relationship with God, vertically with God, is right, then everything else, because he has given us every blessing in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing, then everything else becomes right. What you hope for, what you're satisfied with, what you cherish, what you find your significance in. How content you are with your socioeconomic status. What you see for your future, for your career, for your job. All those things become right because of what Christ has done for us. Because those are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly place. Because our hope is no longer where, it's no longer on this earth. Because what did all the worldly technology innovations promise? They promise a better life on earth. But what does God's grace promise a better life with him eternally in heaven? Those are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's, those are the things that God's grace really provides for us at the end of the day. And that key phrase in Romans, it says, for everyone who believes. Those technologies, you know what? It, the Apple Pay thing, it's only if you're an iPhone user. So, so exclusive. Gosh, Steve Jobs, so exclusive. 
But God's grace is for everyone. Everyone who believes. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is like. No matter your race, your ethnicity, your background, how much money you make, what career, what industry you're part of, where you go to work, whether you're on the island or Kowloon or New Territories. Doesn't matter what country you're from, doesn't matter what language you speak, God's grace is the same for every single person. And it gives the same spiritual blessings to all of those who accept it and receive it. If that is true, if this hope, this freedom, this joy, this peace, this satisfaction, this significance is available for all people, would that not be the greatest motivation for us to be able to live a life that is in line with God's kingdom, with what he wants for us? For the longest time, I think um, this, this concept of grace was, was really abstract for me. I think just, okay, I understand it's undeserved kindness. I understand that uh, grace is something that I didn't deserve that I got and I receive it freely. But you know what? It still feels abstract because day to day, I still have to provide for my own needs. Day to day, I still have to somehow sustain myself. I still have to work hard to earn my own meals and, and rent and all that kind of thing. But I was thinking about it, and I realized when I, when I realized even other examples of grace in my life, it helped me to understand God's grace just a little bit more. And when I was younger, when I, when I grew up, um, I think I, had, I was really blessed. I had, I had very loving parents, and I had a very um, kind of stable childhood where they would just give me everything, and I just got a lot of things. Of course, I didn't deserve it because I was a really, uh, uh, what's it called, undeserving child, right? I was very unappreciative of all the things that my parents gave. I think some of us who are parents now feel that, right? You're like, oh my gosh, this child is a little sinner, right? I still got to love and I still got to give for them, but they're a little sinner, right? And that's all of us right now. That was all of us in this room. We're little sinners, and I was that little sinner as well. And I'll be very uh, undeserving and very entitled with my family. And I took everything for granted growing up. The things that they provided for me, the education they wanted me to get. They pushed me really hard. I would get very angry and upset at them because I'm like, I just want to play. You know, why do you want me to do all this homework? They would push me. But in that way, that was their parents' love. It wasn't until college that I began to understand and realize, actually, in some ways, my parents were a form of grace in my life. I, I didn't realize it, but somewhere along the way, as I began to mature, I real, you know what I realized? I realized I didn't deserve anything that my parents gave me. I didn't choose my parents. My parents were the ones who chose me. Well, kind of, sort of, right? <laughs> they didn't have a choice of who I became, right? But they chose to have me, right, at the very least. And I didn't do anything to somehow merit that they will provide for me. All I did was poop on them, pee on them, you know, like eat their food, spend their money. I, I did everything just to take from them. But I don't know, there was a slowly this, this perspective started to come into my mind where I realized that when I was in university and, and also when I first started to work, all of you college students, when you start to work, you'll find out what happens when you have to make your own money, you have to pay your own bills. You start to realize, wow, it takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of difficulty 
for my parents to be able to provide for me everything that I have now. And I was just, I just started, I was just like floored. I was like, wow, you know what? I'm actually really indebted to my parents. And you know what it caused me to do? It caused me to do what? It caused me to want to live in a way that was pleasing to my parents. My parents said, you know, of course they want the best things for me, but they said, do this, do that. And I was like, yeah, I want to do those things. I want to, I want to have a good career. I want to have a good life. I want to obey and I listen to the advice that they gave to me. Of course, it was, it was difficult because I felt like God was doing different things in my life that was differing with what they wanted for me. But because I realized, wow, they gave so much, it caused me to say, you know what, I want to I wanna, I wanna respond. I want to I live in the way that they want me to live. And I think some of us, we may have experienced that. I know some of us, we all come from different backgrounds, and some of us, we've had really difficult parental upbringing. Some of us, we've had parents who abandoned us or got separated for whatever reason, and so I'm understanding that not everyone may be able to understand. But maybe there was someone else who kind of took you under their wing. Maybe there was a coach, a teacher. Maybe there was an uncle, an aunt, a friend, a cousin a tutor, someone who provided for you, who gave you something that you did not deserve, then now you realize, whoa, because I feel indebted, and they gave me something that even though I didn't do anything to receive it, that now I want to live somehow honoring them, in some way responding to them because of the care that they showed to me. That means, if you know what that feels like, that means you understand grace. That means grace is not this abstract concept that's hard to understand because it's just all these words of love and kindness and things, but it's because you've experienced it before. And that's just a small glimpse of the magnitude of God's grace for us. Because God is what? Our Heavenly Father. God is the one who knew us from before we were even born. He knew us in our mother's womb. He knew us before the world began. He prepared good things for us. How much more, if God is our Heavenly Father, we see our parents, we see all these other uh, examples of people who provided for us, how much more is God as our Heavenly Father going to provide for us everything? And how much more is that grace that much more amazing? If we understand this earthly grace, how much more is that heavenly grace going to change and motivate us to do everything for Him? The life that you have, where you are today, it wasn't anything that you did. Even the reason why you have the parents you have, the reason why there was that tutor, that coach, or that teacher that blessed you in the way that you have, the reason why you came to this church, it wasn't because of you, because of what God has been doing in your life. That was God's grace. And I'm wondering if that will motivate us, if we realize that's what God is doing, that we will be motivated to realize, you know what, because God's grace is so amazing, I want to live a life that's in line with who God is and what he tells me. And that's just the start. And that's just the start of how we think about how do we get motivated to live a godly life. It's when we realize just how great and amazing God's grace is. But that's not enough. We not only have to talk about how do we begin to be motivated to live godly lives, but the question is, not only that one-time motivation, not just that one Flash in the pan, that one instant where we just get super excited. I know many of us, we may have felt that way before. You get really motivated for, the, for that one day, like, yes, 
I'm going to do everything spiritual. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a week. I'm going to pray the whole Bible in two weeks, and then I'll be spiritual. I mean, that's a little extreme. But some of us, we felt that way, and we're so motivated in what happens after a week. It just drops down. Our motivation dies. So we have to understand not only how we get motivated to live godly lives, but how do we actually continue to live godly lives? How do we sustain that motivation over the course of a longer period of time? Let's look into uh, verse 12. I'll read it for us again in verse 12. It says, Training us to renounce godliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is still referring to God's grace. So when he's talking about it, he's saying God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, so on and so forth. That key word is training. And this is a really interesting concept. When was the last time you felt like God's grace was training you? Anyone ever felt that before? Like, I'm getting trained by God's grace. I think it's a little bit of a foreign concept for us to understand because usually when we think about training, we think about physical conditioning. We think of someone who's on a sports team and you have a trainer, you have a coach who is the one who's training you to do a certain thing. Or we might think about it in the business context. When you're in the workplace and your boss is saying, you need to get trained in this and this and this because your skills aren't up to par. And so you need to go to this training course, you need to take these online courses, whatever it is. Some of you students understand training as school. <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm going through all this, it's so boring and you don't have the most delightful feeling to it. Now, how is grace like a trainer? Well, we have to think about what is the role of a trainer? What's the purpose of a trainer? What do trainers really do? If you think about it, trainers, they, they guide and they teach you things. They give you some kind of information in a practical way so that you're able to do something better. That's what most of us see as training. But that's not just what trainers do. The other thing that traders do is they motivate us. Isn't that right? Don't raise your hand how many of us we've ever hired a personal trainer for ourselves, for, for physically working out. People hire personal trainers oftentimes because they're not motivated enough to get fit on their own. Some of us are incredibly motivated. We're like, doing triathlons, we're swimming every single day, you know, we're super fit, and so we're like, I don't need a trainer. But for most of us, the other 99% of the world, we need trainers, right? Because we're, we're trying to go running, and we set these New Year's resolutions. We're like, yeah, I'm going to get in shape. And you go running for like two days, and you're like, it's too hot. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Even though it's Hong Kong winter, it's still too hot. It's too humid, and I'm sweating up a storm. Right? Oftentimes, we get personal trainers because we're not motivated on our own to be able to work out. And the most effective trainer, you know, is, it, is, it, are, is a trainer effective if you see that trainer once a month? No, probably not. That means you're only gonna work out that once a month. The most effective trainer, of course, if you had all the money in the world, is if you can have that trainer follow you around your whole life, just be your little shadow, right? And that trainer is picking at every little thing that you do. Don't eat that, eat that, don't eat that. All right, go up the stairs, don't take the elevator. Imagine if they were to follow you all throughout their days. That would get you into shape so quickly. Now imagine if grace was like that. 
if grace was actually ever present, always with you, every single day. And in fact, it is. Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23 in the ESV. And we think of grace as mercy and love. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's love and His grace is always present for us all the time. I think sometimes we just don't realize that. We just don't notice it. We feel like, you know what, I feel God today, but I don't, I don't feel it tomorrow. Or I don't feel it the next day. And we get discouraged. We're like, God, where are you? But God's presence and God's grace for us isn't dependent on how we feel. It's actually present every day regardless of whether we like it or not. It's always there. It's new every morning, day in and day out. There's new ways that we can experience God's grace. New situations in our lives where we can experience God's grace. And some of us might object, you know what, I, I might know in my head that God's grace is always available. Some of us might say, but I just get numb to it. I get jaded. It just becomes this intellectual thing where I'm saying, oh, yeah, God's grace, but it doesn't really impact our lives. It doesn't really motivate me. It doesn't sustain my motivation. It doesn't change how I live my life. Some of us, we might feel it. And there's some truth to that. That the more things you repeat over and over again, there's some point where psychologically you just go, oh, well, you know, how many of you have ever set a reminder for yourself? You know, said, oh, okay, all right, I'm going to set a reminder, I'm going to pray, okay. Every single day at this time at 12.57 p.m., I'm going to pray, all right. And it pops up, and the first couple days you pray, yes, I got this. And then you know what happened? I don't know, it's just psychologically, after it pops up, you know, after a week, it pops up several times. You know what happened? You just swipe it away. Snooze. Right? That's what happens with your alarm, right? You've got to change your alarm to a different song because that old song, you don't even hear it anymore because you're so annoyed with it. You never want to listen to it again because you made it your alarm. Right? It just happens. We just can condition psychologically because after something appears over and over again, we're just like, ah, oh, it's the same thing over and over again. But this is only true if you only see grace as a passive actor in your life and you don't actually see it as actively training you day to day. Imagine what would it be like if you actually saw grace as something that is relevant and training in every area of your life. Let me give an example. Let's say you're trying to lose weight. Let's say you're, okay, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like Shave off a few pounds, trying to get some more muscle. I want to get that summer body. Can't wait to get that summer body so I can go to Sheko Beach and then show off to everyone. You know, not that that's anyone here, right? Let's just say you're, you're wanting to lose weight. Can you lose weight if the only thing you do is just work out? If you've never tried, most of us from experience know that's not possible. Just by working out doesn't guarantee that you're going to lose weight. What else do you have to do? You have to change your diet. You have to eliminate snacking. You have to stop eating late at night. You have to sleep well. You have to change your whole lifestyle in order to change the way that you look at your body. I, uh, me and my friend, um, back when we were in university, we were like really, we were just interesting people. We had this great idea. He was like, yo, 
let's have a six-pack competition. It's like, what's a six-pack competition? He was like, six-pack in six months. I was like, uh, all right, you're on, you know? Like, the winner has to do, you know, the loser has to do something. And, you know, I was like, okay, we'll, we'll do this. And so I was really motivated, actually, for a good couple of months, because I really wanted to beat this guy. But the problem was that the only thing I would do was work out more. And every single time I would go to the dorm, so the problem with dorm food when I was in university, it was like you have certain entries. It's not like you order your own meal. You have entries, and then after you tap in, then it's all you can eat. <laughs> and then guess what happens? I'm like, the more you work out, what happens to your, your, uh, your hunger? It grows, right? You get so hungry, and so I start eating everything. And I end up eating like double the portion that I would normally eat. And so, of course, what happens? I don't, definitely don't get a six-pack, right? And I just didn't work. And I started to realize, you know what? I have a very false view of what it means to actually like, get into shape and conditioning. Because I just compartmentalize my idea of getting a six-pack as just working out. And I think that's how many of us we view life, and that's how many of us we view grace. We compartmentalize our lives. We say, yes, grace can see, and we can see it in this area of our lives, but we don't see it in these other areas of our lives. But what is God's grace, what is it training us to do? There are two things, to renounce and to live. It's to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He doesn't say ungodliness and worldly passions just in your life group, just in church life. It's relevant to every aspect of your life. And then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. Where does self-control apply to in your life? Everywhere. <laughs> right? When you're on YouTube, when you're on social media, when you're doing anything for that matter, self-control is relevant. But the problem is that in our society, we tend to compartmentalize in our lives. We say work colleagues are work colleagues and nothing else. We say, you know, my, I, have a, I have a little work box. I have a little friend box. This is, you know, this is the, the running joke for men, right? We, we're, we're waffles. Why? Because waffles are like, they have little boxes in them. And then the maple syrup, it only stays in that one little box. It doesn't spill over to other boxes, right? So men, we have like a work box. So when I'm work, I'm only thinking about work. And then in my friend box, when I'm with friends, I'm only thinking about friends. And then when I'm with my spouse, I only think about my spouse. But when I'm not at home, I don't think about my spouse, right? And then this is the one that wives hate the most, the nothing box, right? When we're thinking about nothing, and then they're like, honey, what are you thinking about? Nothing. What? <laughs> okay, it's not just men, right? But we compartmentalize different areas of our lives. We do spiritual things only during church, only during life group. We pray only when our leaders challenge us to pray. We only think about praying and discerning God's will when it's related to something spiritual. Like, oh, should I do missions? When it comes to finding a new job, going into a particular industry, we don't ever think about that. And why is that so difficult? It's because oftentimes we manage separate identities in each of our different areas of our lives. And the problem with that is that grace wants us to change. And the problem is if we manage these separate identities and these separate compartments, what we're saying is, you know what? I don't really want to change deep inside. I want to manage who I am in different areas of my life and never actually experience that deeper change. 
I want to protect, I want to be able to show who I am in different areas according to who I want to be. But never deep inside do I really want to change on the inside. Because that will be scary. That will be difficult. That will be hard. No wonder so many of us, we struggle with the same thing in so many different areas of our lives. And we get shocked and surprised. Like, oh, wow, I didn't know I struggled with people pleasing in this area of my life. Well, if you're a people pleaser, of course, you're going to struggle with it in all areas of your lives. And if you really want to be free from people pleasing, is not allowing God's grace to train you in that area of your life the thing that you need to be able to allow God's grace to do? I'm wondering if we will allow that to happen. We would say, you know what, God, I want your grace to to be in every area of my life. When I go to work, I want to say, you know what, God, your grace, your mercies are new every morning. And even though right now I'm really afraid of what my boss is going to say, I'm really afraid for my job, and, you know, all I can think of right now is financial stability. But I realize, you know what, just like that mini grace that my parents gave to me, I realize, God, your grace is abundant for me, and I have everything that I need. I have every spiritual blessing. So instead of being so fearful and so worldly and my worldly passions, I'm going to renounce that. Instead, I'm going to live a self-controlled and upright life. You know what, God? I want to live for you at work today. I don't want to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to live for you. And instead of doing everything just to please my boss so that somehow I can get that promotion, you know what? I'm going to actively try to love my colleagues. I'm going to do the best that I can because I know God is going to be glorified in my life through what I do. You know what, God, I know I'm a student right now, and I know that it's so tempting just to not focus on school. It's so, so easy to just get into this procrastination mindset. But God, I want your grace to be available and, and persevering in every area of my life so that even related to school, I want to study for you. I want to study so that when, when people ask me for help, that I can answer them. And as I answer them and we're going into deeper conversation, they somehow be able to share something deeper. They're struggling. Now, I could be there to support them. I could be there to pray for them. I could be there to invite them into a community that can show them love unconditionally that they can't experience anywhere else. I just gave us two examples. But I'm wondering if we will let God's grace train us in every single aspect of our lives so that we will not be church junkies where God's grace and prayer and all this kind of stuff will only be relevant on Sundays or only be relevant on a Tuesday or a Wednesday when we have life group or on a Saturday. But Monday through Saturday and Sunday, God's grace will be training us every single day. Can you imagine if we're experiencing revival every single day of the week? Our lives will be so different. And I'm believing that that's going to help us to continue to live godly lives. And that's one aspect of it. Then the second and last aspect that I wanted to talk about is that waiting for our blessed hope. This idea of waiting for our blessed hope is what's going to help us to continue to sustain the motivation to live the lives that God wants us to live. Let's finish off and read verses 13 and 14. It says, waiting for our blessed hope. This is now referring to Paul is referring to now believers, Christians, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And we realize, and we note here in these verses, the key word, just like it was training in the previous verse, the key word here is now waiting. I'll say waiting is the ultimate test to see if your motivation is really sustained by God or if it's sustained by something out there in the world. Humans were really not good at waiting. Really, we're, we're, we're horrible waiters. I think if you think about advertising, you think about marketing, you think about sales, like these are literally industries, whole organizations, whole schools of thought just built on the premise of exploiting the human's inability to wait. Think about why do we have promotions? Why do stores run promotions? It's because they want to get things out fast. How do they get things out fast? It's by offering you a deal that you can't refuse. I subscribe to a lot of deal sites. It's an honest confession. Your honest confession of, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat materialistic in that way. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I love the deals. You know why? Because you know what? I have this idea of all the best tech, I love tech gadgets, all the best tech gadgets that I want ultimately. But what happens is sometimes there's this deal. Even though that gadget isn't like the best exactly what I want, sometimes the deal's too good to refuse, right? Like, and it's so easy, just click, 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 and then boom, it ships to you and you're there. You're like, wow, it's so happy, right? And you get so, you just get this high of like, wow, that was amazing. <laughs> but it prevents me from waiting for the really good thing that I really wanted, ultimately, and also I get talked to by certain people in my life. Right? Isn't that true? Like, there's so many things that ultimately we want that are the ultimate good thing. Right? We think that we want this tech gadget, but really it's because we desire more convenience or more hope or more satisfaction. But in the interim, because there's a deal, because there's a promotion, you, it, it causes you to say, oh, you know what? I'm not going to wait for that ultimate thing. I'm just going to get this thing right now because it's going to give me this temporary satisfaction. So if there's something that we really are going to wait for, because there are constant things bombarding us day after day, all from the world, the advertisements, the commercials, our colleagues, our peers, we compare ourselves to what other people are buying, what other people are getting, that makes us like, oh, I can't wait anymore because everyone else is getting it too. If we are really to wait for something, that means that thing must be really worth waiting for. If we're genuinely to wait for something, that means we ascribe such a worth and such an importance on that thing that we're waiting for. That doesn't matter what else will come our way, that we will wait for it. That we will have self-control to say, you know what? Until that thing comes, I'm not going to pursue anything else. And what is that thing that we wait for? What is that blessed hope that Paul is now talking about? He talks about, he says that this blessed hope is for the glory of God. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That same idea of appearing, now the glory of God is going to appear. So what is this glory? What is it about this glory that is so worthy, so weighty, so significant that will cause us to be able to willing to wait for it? Uh, there's a tool called Helps Word Studies uh, in some Bibles. Uh, it talks about this idea of glory. It refers to it as exercising personal opinion which determines value. 
and corresponds to the Old Testament word kabod, which means to be heavy. I think in our church we talked about this before, where this word glory means heaviness. Both terms convey God's infinite, intrinsic worth, substance, and essence. So pretty much what it's saying is that God, in and of itself, this idea of glory, it means there's, a pers- there's an opinion of something that's so valuable, so weighty. And it corresponds to this idea of kabod, which is the Old Testament word for glory, which means infinite worth intrinsic worth. There's something about God that is so valuable, so weighty, so powerful that makes him so worth waiting for. We have to think about God as this worthy. I don't know if many of us, we think this way, that God is the most worthy or weighty or most significant person in the whole universe, in our whole lives. I think we ascribe significance to so many other things. Typically, we ascribe value to what? Our future careers. We always ascribe value to who's going to be my future spouse. Where are my kids going to go? What is their future going to look like? But when was the last time we said, you know what, God, you are the most worthy person or being in the whole universe? We really said that. We really believed it. John Piper, he says this. He says, To love God does not, mean desire, does not mean to meet his needs, but rather to delight in him and to be captivated by his glorious power and grace, and to value him above all other things on earth. All the rest of the commandments are the kinds of things that we will do from our hearts if our hearts are truly delighted with and resting in the glory of God's grace. Pretty much what he's saying in this book, Desiring God, he's pretty much saying it comes down to your heart. What does your heart consider significant? If your heart is considering all these other things, material things, future things, significant, then of course, then that's what you're going to be drawn to. But if your heart considers God as the most significant, then yeah, you're going to be willing to wait. That will motivate you to do things for God. And there's no shortcut for valuing God. There's no shortcut for saying just, you know, God, you are the greatest. It requires a daily surrender of these things to say, you know what, God, you are more significant than my future. You are more significant than this physical item. You are more significant than these relationships. You are more significant than anything else in all creation to me. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. And many of us, we feel like, you know what, God? It's not really worth waiting for. Or I I realize I want these things so bad, I can't surrender it to you. But as I was thinking about it, there's just one thing that I was understanding is how can we actually see God's as the weightiest and the most valuable thing? Well, how is it that we actually determine value in our lives? Usually we determine value by what? Cost versus benefit. Cost of acquisition, cost of purchase versus on the benefit or return on investment. That's how you determine worth, isn't it? If something costs very much and it also brings you a high level of benefit, that thing is very valuable. If it costs very little and doesn't bring you any benefit, you feel like that's totally worthless. So what is it about God 
that costs so much and that brings such a high return on investment. It's in verse 14. It talks about Jesus our Savior who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the good news. That the cost of providing for us everything was his own son's life. That God gave himself, God gave his own son to redeem us from all lawlessness. In fact, it didn't cost us a dime. It didn't cost us a single dollar. But it cost Jesus his life. When you think about what is the most valuable thing, and, and when you look at all the rescue missions, when you think of natural disasters, what are people willing to spend thousands and millions of dollars on? Rescue operations. Just for a single life. For a child that's buried under rubble. When we really think about it, yeah, the, one of the most valuable things that we think about is a human life. And if we believe that, then we realize, you know what? God gave his life, his son. That's how much it cost. More worth millions and trillions of dollars for someone to still continue to live. But he was willing to give that up. Do we realize the cost of that? That it costs God everything. It costs us nothing. But it costs God everything to give us everything. He redeems us from lawlessness. He purifies us for himself so that we could be zealous for good works. Isn't that amazing? Like, wouldn't you want to be fully changed and fully purified and fully redeemed so that you don't have to struggle with, with lust, so you don't have to struggle with, with sin, with people-pleasing, with all these things that constantly get you down? When's the last time you really believe that, you know what, God can totally change my life and that's what God is offering to me? When he gives me his grace and his glory, you know what, God traded his son so that I could have everything, all the blessings, all the joy, this eternity with God in heaven that no one else, nothing else on earth could provide for me. It was only because he paid that enormous cost so that we could have this perfect life with him for eternity. Not on earth, but with him in eternity in heaven. That is the greatest cost for the greatest return on investment of anything in the whole universe. And if we really understand that, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, then wow, if we understand that every single day, I really believe that's going to help continue motivate us every single day for doing the things that God wants us to do. If we see everything in light of, wow, you know what? God gave, God, God sacrificed everything so I could have everything. Man, why would I not want to give him back everything that I have? Why would I not want to every single day wake up and live my life for him? Why would I not want to renounce all of these ungodly things, these lawless things, so that I could live an upright and self-controlled life because, man, God has given me that life. He's promised it to me. That's the good news. If we say that we believe it, we believe Jesus Christ, you know, I, I think we could repeat in our heads, oh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and he rose again so that I can have eternal life. But if we understand the weight and the significance of that, that's the motivation that will continue to sustain us.
And that's why I want to share with us the one thing, if you remember anything for today, is that God's grace sparks our inspiration while God's glory sustains our motivation. God's grace, that's the spark. That's the spark of what inspires us to start following God, to start living a life that's in line with Him. And it's His glory, His weightiness, His significance, the cost that He bore, and the blessings that He provided. That's what sustains our motivation. I want to give us some next steps, just two things for us to keep in mind, just to practically begin to live this out. The first thing is just be aware of how God's grace is training you every single day. Just be aware of it. I, I, I use this illustration. It's not a really illustration. It's just, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, I told one of my life remembers the other day, not the other day, a couple years ago. <laughs> Sorry. A couple years ago, I, was like, I said, God's grace, it should change the way you brush your teeth. And at that moment, I didn't really think about what I was saying. I was just, I don't know. I was just thinking about something random that we do every day. So brushing your teeth, you should change the way you brush your teeth. And for some reason, one of my life group members, like years later, came up to me and said, you know what, you, when you said it changes the way you brush your teeth, it really made me think. Because I don't see the significance of brushing my teeth every single day. How can God's grace impact my brushing of teeth? <laughs> do I brush it harder, cleaner, so that, you know, I can smile better and, you know, be more attractive to other people, you know? I don't know. But when I'm thinking about it, you know what? Even the mundane little things, I'm wondering if we could really start to think of, well, how is, God, how is God's grace relevant to every single thing I do in life? It's not so much that it's just brushing teeth. But I'm wondering, I think there's so many mundane things, little things that we don't ever think about in the perspective of God's grace. That God has gracefully blessed me so that I could be a blessing to someone else. That man, he doesn't have to make me afraid in this kind of... Reflect on those moments. The moments that you're afraid, the moments that you're bored, the moments that you are anxious, the moments that you're angry, the moments that you are uh, nervous. What are those moments? And how does God's grace relate in that moment? The second thing is then, spend time waiting on God this week. Spend time waiting on God this week. It's one of the most difficult things. I, I feel like for, for many of us, we haven't waited on God for a while. We just go from thing to thing to thing to thing. And we just get whatever comes our way. But that's the very thing that prevents us from realizing how significant, how good God is. And of course, if we're constantly satisfying ourselves with these worldly things, our motivation, our desire for God is going to be pretty low. Because we're already satisfied. And so let's wait on God this week. Spend some time. Cut out your, your social media. Just say, this week, God, I'm going to cut off all social media. This week, God, I'm going to cut out all the games that I normally play on my mobile device. This week, God, I'm going to cut out, for me, it's like reading BBC, BBC News. <laughs> I don't know why, I just love reading BBC News. <laughs> Whatever it is for you that you know is a habit, that you always, it's your go-to, cut that thing out and just say, you know what, God, during that time, instead, I'm going to wait on you. And spend time waiting on you so that you can reveal to me how significant and how important you are. Can we stand together? We'll respond. (laughs) 
when we think about it, I think we're trying to connect everything together in the last couple of weeks that we've been covering Titus. And I mentioned it before, but everything since Titus chapter 1, it's been talking about what really compels us to live a godly Christian life. And it started with, yeah, being upright, telling the truth, not being a liar. It continued on with how do we actually be an influence to other people? How can we live lives that are so upright that other people notice and that we can use that as an influence to share with other people our faith? To then, it talked about how can we uh, then also be influences in the next generation? Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. How do we live so that we can pass this on to the next generation? And I think when we think about each of those individually, it can get overwhelming. You know, like, oh man, there's so many things to do. I can't possibly do everything. But when it comes down to it, like we talked about this morning, it's pretty simple. It just comes down to allowing God to train us every single day with his grace. It comes down to realizing, man, it, it appeared. Because God's grace appeared so significantly. Wow, that is something that I have to respond to. And just waiting on God. And so I'm wondering, instead of just being overwhelmed by all the things that we've talked about in past, can we just focus on that one thing? Can we just focus on, God, how are you now sparking something in my heart to realize and re-recognize something about your grace? And maybe, maybe I lost touch of grace. I forgot about what, it, what it's like to, to be in God's grace. His undeserving kindness for me. I forgot what that was like. I've been doing everything. Somehow I like, feel like I have to earn things so that I could deserve it. And I'm wondering, after that, can we just begin to wait on God? To say, you know what, God? You're so weighty. You're so glorious. You're so good. I just want to wait on you. Can we just respond that way first? Can we just, number one, let God's grace be renewed on our mind? What is, that, what is that undeserving kindness that I didn't understand? And as you're beginning to realize that, then begin to wait on God. Just ask God to speak to you. I really believe that he wants to speak to us. He wants to meet us this morning. And as he speaks to us, that, that's going to allow us to be motivated to live out the life that he wants us to. So let's just do those two things. Let's Let's meditate on God's grace and let's wait on God together. Let's do that.